We are in Matthew chapter 23 this morning. We are finishing out the woe section. Woe to the scribes and Pharisees part 2, Matthew 23, uh, 25 through 36. And let's ask the Lord to bless. Lord, we thank you for your word. Minister to our hearts now as we study together. Pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, Note on the overhead, uh, the theme of Matthew is Christ the King. And we are still finishing out that section on the formal rejection of the King in chapters 21 through 23. Well, in our study today, uh, we are in the last week of Christ's earthly ministry, which involved a series of conflicts between Jesus and the religious leaders of Israel. I mean, they did their best to try and stump Jesus with gotcha questions, and yet they were unsuccessful. Then it was Jesus' turn. He asked them why the Messiah, the son of David, was called Lord by David, in Psalm 110, which left them speechless. Then we have this followed up in Matthew 23, uh, in which the essentially the entire chapter is given over to exposing and denouncing these hypocritical religious leaders. They were really spiritual poison for the nation of Israel, although they made themselves out to be the spiritual elite. Uh, Notice just a few things by way of review here in terms of the outline of Matthew 23. Uh, He first exposes the scribes and Pharisees, first 12 verses. And then in this long section in verses 13 through 36, we have seven woes of judgment pronounced on the scribes and the Pharisees. And finally, uh, Lord willing, next week we'll finish out uh, the fate of Jerusalem uh, as Jesus spells it out there. Well, he began by exposing them, and uh, he described them as self-made, hypocrites, legalistic, unmerciful, piously self-promoting, selfish, and self-exalting. Not a very good description. And then we noticed the woes last uh, time in our study. In verses uh, 13 through 24, uh, woe to the scribes and Pharisees. What are they doing? Why? Why are these woes pronounced on them? Well, they are hindering those uh, entering to go into the kingdom. They exploit the vulnerable, widows. They are hell-raisers in the sense that they turn converts into twice the sons of hell as themselves. They are vow-breakers, have a very small view of God and and really what's involved in in making a vow to God. And they were inconsistent legalists. But Jesus is only at this point about halfway through in dishing out the woe pronouncements against these scribes and Pharisees. So we pick it up today today. Matthew 23, verse 25. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Woe is a pronouncement of judgment that is indicative of forlorn misery. Miserable judgment is headed their way. Now, repeatedly, all the way through chapter 23, Jesus has in his sights the scribes, that is, the educated religious lawyers and teachers, and the Pharisees, who were the religious conservatives, who were also very legalistic. The word Pharisee, by the way, means separated one. Both the scribes and the Pharisees, as a general rule, were full of religious pride. And they saw themselves as the spiritual elite. But Jesus put his finger right on their most basic problem, calling them hypocrites. 
Now, the word hypocrite means one who plays a part. It was used in the theater of an actor. It's the idea of being a pretender or an actor. Religious hypocrites pretend to be real, but they are phony. They lead double lives. As emphasized by Jesus, hypocrisy was the key defining trait of these religious leaders. I mean, it's always serious, but it's really serious when you have religious leaders full of hypocrisy. In their hypocrisy, they made the outside look good with all their legalistic rule-keeping. Very concerned about all these little rules. But the problem was inside. Does this ever happen at your house? Once in a while, we go to our cupboard and get out what we think is a clean cup. I mean, on the outside, it looks good. But then on closer inspection, we see some foreign material clinging to the inside. What do you think we do? Do we say, oh, it doesn't really matter? No, we put it in the sink with the dirty dishes. And we get a clean one. One that is clean not only on the outside, but also on the inside. Which is really where it's most important, on the inside, right? The problem with the scribes and the Pharisees was that they had an inside problem, which is to say a heart problem, a character problem. And Jesus spells out that the filth on the inside is that of being full of extortion and self-indulgence. They were hypocrites because outwardly they made it look like they were such holy men, so dedicated and giving of themselves to God. But in truth, they were really masters at exploiting people, taking advantage of people. The word extortion is the idea of grasping after something greedily. And as we noted last time in verse 14, they took advantage of the widows. And if they were willing to do that, they would also greedily take from anyone that they could take advantage of. For them, it was really all about getting for self, and not giving for the sake of others. Self-indulgence is the idea of being given over to self-gratification with a lack of self-control. So these religious leaders were all about preying on others for self-enrichment purposes. Verse 26, blind Pharisee. They don't see clearly. They don't see at all. Blind Pharisee. First cleanse the inside of the cup and dish that the outside of them may be clean also. In their blindness, they could not see that the most important thing was to cleanse the inside of the cup first, which then leads to the outside also being clean. But the most important thing is the internal cleansing. Now, religious legalists focus on externals, but God's essential focus is on the heart. That's always the case. How do you cleanse the inside? Well, this is what the ministry of John the Baptist was all about. As he called the people to repentance, and then to indicate that in getting baptized, which was an outward picture of inward cleansing. Uh, Note, uh, we have a summary of his ministry in Mark 1.4. John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. 
Repentance was key to this internal cleansing that Christ called for, which, if real, would also change the outward. That's the order. First the inward, and then the outward. By the way, this was the problem with the Pharisees and the Sadducees when they came to get baptized by John. He saw through them that they were just about another outward ritual. But the real essential thing was internal repentance, which they were not willing to do. Note uh, what happened when they came. Matthew 3, 7 and 8. But when he saw the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said, Brood of vipers. You know, somebody comes to you for baptism. That's kind of, uh, isn't that kind of rude? (laughs) Hello, brood of vipers. What are you doing here? Uh, He said to them, uh, I mean... They're coming to his baptism. And he says to them, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Therefore, therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance. You see, they missed the real issue, which was repentance. They were wanting to just make it about an outward ritual. And John says, no, the real issue is repentance. Verse 27. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Now, these religious leaders were sticklers for avoiding outward defilement. Every year before Passover, they would make sure the tombs were whitewashed and shining very brightly so that no one might inadvertently touch one and thereby be defiled ceremonially, and because of that, not be allowed to partake in the Passover festivities. Now, they knew, uh, the Old Testament did say this, uh, Numbers nineteen sixteen: whoever in the open field touches one who is slain by a sword, or who has died, or a bone of a man, or a grave, shall be unclean seven days. So, They were hypocritical in that they made the outside look all beautiful, like whitewashed tombs, but inside they were defiled, just like graves that contained all manner of uncleanness related to the dead bones of people. Again, their problem was an inside problem. This is a good question. Are you whitewashed or washed white? You know, as a young boy, my mother made me memorize scripture to, uh, to receive an allowance. I liked allowance. I, I, I really didn't like the, the idea that she made me memorize two verses a week. I quickly learned that the shortest verses in the Bible are found in Proverbs. <laughs> At least that was my analysis. And so I, what I had to memorize, I memorized Proverbs. And one of the verses that I memorized was Proverbs 20, verse 9. It's a short little verse. And it says this. Who can say, I have made my heart clean? I'm pure from my sin. It was a short verse. Easy to learn. But it was a stumper to me because I understood it to rhetorically be saying that no one can say they have made their heart clean. You know what? I understood correctly. And that bothered me. There is nothing externally 
that will cleanse the inside. This was the problem with the Pharisees. They were trying to cleanse themselves from the outside, from the outside in. When in reality, God demands an inside cleansing, an inside out concept. This was the fundamental problem with the Jews. They were depending on outward legalism to make themselves right with God. Here in Romans, Paul summarizes, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. They're not saved. What's their problem? He's speaking generally. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. They have a zeal. They're very religious, but not according to knowledge. They don't really understand what it means to be right with God. What's their problem? For they being ignorant of God's righteousness, how to be right with God on, on his terms, they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness. There you go. They're seeking to establish their own righteousness by their outward works and religiosity. And thereby have not submitted to the righteousness of God. I mean, you can't have it both ways and say, I'm making myself right with God through all my religiosity and I'm accepting what God has done for me in the person of Jesus Christ. You can't have it both ways. And so he says, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. This is how you get right with God. You believe in Christ. Now, how can one have internal cleansing? There are really two things you need to know. Number one, the provision for cleansing is 100% God's doing through Christ. We just celebrated communion. 1 John 1, 7, if we walk in the light as he's in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses from all sin. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, knowing that you were not redeemed, bought, your sin paid for, and, and you were bought. You were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. God has made provision for our cleansing through the blood of Jesus Christ. The second thing you need to know, however, is that the truth of Christ must be appropriated by faith. Christ did it all, but you must receive him by faith as your Savior. You must personally apply the truth. You had this big showdown, Jerusalem Council, and uh, Peter is... Uh, rehearsing a few things, and we read in Acts 15, 8 and 9, so God who knows the heart, it's about a heart, it's about the heart, it's an internal issue. God who knows the heart acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us, and made no distinction between us, Jews and Gentiles, made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith, by faith purifying their hearts by faith. We must personally appropriate the truth of Christ as our Savior by faith. As our Savior, he died for all of our sins. And as Lord, he arose again the third day. This is the gospel. And when we believe on Christ as our personal Savior and our living Lord, we have eternal life. Romans 4, 5 says... But to him who does not work, we're talking about the person who doesn't work. 
not depending on his works. But to him who does not work, does not work to try to get himself to heaven, to him who does not work but believes on him. Those are two different things. You're either trying to work your way to heaven or you're believing in Christ to get you to heaven. Him who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly. His faith, this person's faith is accounted for righteousness. The one who's not working but believing. There are those who are trying to work their way to heaven through being religious, through rules and rituals. That is an external emphasis like the Pharisees. In contrast, a true saving faith is all about the heart. Saving faith does not depend on any of my works to save me, but rather believes in Jesus alone for salvation. This is the person who has saving faith and not the one trying to work their way to heaven. So here's the question. Are you trusting in externals like religious rituals or sacraments to cleanse you from sin? Or are you solely believing in Christ as your Savior? Don't be a Pharisee majoring on the externals, but inwardly being full of uncleanness. Only a faith that trusts in Jesus alone for forgiveness will get you to heaven. One of my favorite songs is, Are You Washed in the Blood? Have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you fully trusting in His grace this hour? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Behold the Lamb of God, John announced, who takes away the sin of the world. In the book of Revelation, we read about the Lamb's book of life. It's Jesus' book. It's the Lamb's book. And it's the book of life. All those who truly trust in Jesus, the moment they come to trust in Him as their Savior, have their name written down in this book. It's the Lamb's book. Because only those who trust in Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world have their name written down there. It's Jesus' special book. And when you put your faith in Him as Savior and Lord, He writes your name down there. Let me ask you this morning. Is your name written down in the Lamb's book of life? That will be the ultimate issue in eternity. So, are you whitewashed? Or are you washed white? In the blood of the Lamb. The difference is between heaven and hell. In Acts 20, 21, Paul summarized his ministry as calling both Jews and Gentiles to repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. In repentance, we acknowledge our sin problem before God and our desire to be right. In faith, we find the answer to our sin problem in Jesus alone, who is the Savior of all who believe in Him. Verse 28, even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Oh, they put on a real show outwardly. But inside, they were full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Again, hypocrisy denotes deception and pretense. Lawlessness denotes behavior that has no real regard for God's authority. They claim to be all about God's law, But inside they were hypocritical rebels who paid more attention to their own legalistic rules than to the weightier matters of God's law involving justice, mercy, and faith. Ed Glasscock says the irony of this is that those who prided themselves in the law were condemned for not being under control of the law. 
Lawlessness denotes they're doing their own thing instead of truly following God. And by way of application, I think we see this often in the church at large today, where people are really about following their own rules instead of truly following what God says, which is really the spirit of legalism, which now I'm all of a sudden going my man-made rules instead of what God really says. I read an article this week about love. And the question was asked, when people walk into church off the cultural street here in the Western world, what do they think love is? And the person they were interviewing responded this way. The answer was, love is self-expression. Love is self-discovery, self-definition, self-realization, self-actualization. And if you love me, you will let me be who I am. And then he says, this view goes so deeply into our cultural DNA that even as Christians, we come into the church building on Sunday morning with these views of love. You know, I think it's pretty accurate. This redefining of love in a self-centered way is exactly the kind of thing the Pharisees were doing. It really amounts to twisting God's word to where now everything revolves around self. Selfism is really what defined the Pharisees, which at core was what their lawless hypocrisy was all about. They pretended it was all about God. That was outwardly. When in their hearts, it was really all about them. When religious selfism rules a person, it really amounts to a type of Pharisaic hypocrisy and lawlessness. Verse 29, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. I mean, he's really letting them have it. This is crucifixion week. This is passion week. Things have been building to a head. Did Christ cower and say, oh, please go easy on me? Oh, no. (laughs) He's letting them have it. All seven barrels. Seven woes. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous. Again, the key denunciation is their hypocrisy. You see, outwardly, they really made over the dead prophets, elaborately building up and decorating their tombs. Verse 30, and they say, in their, this is in their hypocrisy, and they say, if we had lived, if we had lived in the days of, of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. We would have never harmed them. So they admitted that the forefathers had abused and killed the prophets, but they hypocritically said, we would not have been partakers with them. Of course they were hypocritical liars, for in fact, they had the very same spirit because at this very time, they were plotting on how they might kill Jesus. After he raised Lazarus from the dead, we read in John eleven fifty three. then from that day on, they plotted to put him to death. They were plotting. They wanted him dead. Verse 31. Therefore you are witnesses against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. So Jesus here picks up on the admitted association that they were the sons of those who murdered the prophets. In effect, Jesus intimates that it is indeed like father, like son. In effect, he was telling them that their fruit hadn't fallen far from the the forefather's tree. In spirit, they are indeed the sons of the murderous forefathers, even though hypocritically, 
They want to distance themselves from them. Now, in Hebrew thought, the idea of sons is to share in the same characteristics. What they fail to realize is that not only were they the physical sons, but also the spiritual sons of these murderers. They shared in the very same nature. Now, this is exactly, by the way, what Stephen told the Jewish religious leaders. Stephen, the first martyr of the church. This is exactly what he told the religious leaders just before they murdered him in Acts chapter 7. This is some bold stuff, too. He says, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? Can you name one? That's what he's really saying to them. And they killed those who foretold of the coming of the just one, of whom now you have become the betrayers and murderers. So Jesus exposed these Jewish religious leaders as having the very same murderous spirit that was in their forefathers. And shortly they would prove it in leading the people to rally for Christ's crucifixion. So he says to them, verse 32, fill up then the measure of your father's guilt. In effect, they were continuing the very same practice as their forefathers. Namely, that of violently rejecting God's prophets, who uncompromisingly shared God's message with the people. Thus, they were guilty by association in carrying on with the very same spirit. The sense here is almost like when Jesus told Judas, what you do, do quickly. In a sense, he is giving them over to their reprobate ways, which will bring to completion the guilt that has long been building toward a climactic judgment. One commentator said, the nuance is, go on, finish what your father started. The Jewish leadership in the nation had persecuted and killed prophet after prophet, who were the forerunners to the Messiah. And now the ultimate prophet, as found in the Messiah, was on the scene, and in climactic form, they were rejecting him and plotting his demise. Thus, the guilt mounting through the centuries was coming to a climactic head in this generation. Now, God's method through time, and we want to get this this morning, God's method in redemptive history is to allow guilt to build up until finally the cup is full, and then to bring down severe judgment. We saw this in relation to the flood. In Genesis 6, 3, the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh. Yet his day shall be 120 years. God, in effect, is saying, I'm going to put up this, with this for another 120 years, but that's it. God was continuing to give some space until the cup of iniquity was full. In Genesis 15, as God is talking to Abram, he said to him in verse 13, he said to Abram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs. He's talking about when they would be down in Egypt for 400 years. And will serve them, and they will afflict them 400 years. Which came to be fulfilled exactly as God said. But then he says, the reason we need 400 years of space in there. But in the fourth generation, they shall return here. Why? Why is it going to take this amount of time? Well, because for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet 
complete. Interesting statement. God was waiting for the Amorites' cup of iniquity to be completely filled before he allowed the children of Israel to take over the land of Canaan. In like manner, God had patiently been waiting and allowing the Jews' cup of iniquity to get fuller and fuller as they rejected his prophets. But now the cup is about to be filled in the murder of the Messiah. And so Jesus said, fill, that, fill up then the measure of your father's guilt. The mounting guilt of the fathers was about to find a climactic fulfillment in this generation. Paul alluded to the same thing in 1 Thessalonians 2, 15 and 16. He's talking about the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and persecuted us. And they do not please God and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they may be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins, the wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. William MacDonald says the fathers had filled the cup of murder partway by killing the prophets. The scribes and Pharisees would soon fill it to the brim by killing the Lord Jesus and his followers, thus bringing to a terrible climax what their fathers had begun. What Jesus is saying here connects to the parable he had just taught in chapter 21, 33-39, in which the tenant vine dressers killed the owner's servants and then conspired also to kill his son, that they might have the inheritance. Jesus then followed that up by quoting from Psalm 118, which speaks of the rejected stone. The rejected stone, which becomes the chief cornerstone. Well, he continues, verse 33, serpents. You think this was uh, amiable, friendly, uh, nice, uh, let's, let's not ruffle anybody's feathers. No. Serpents? Brood of vipers? How can you escape the condemnation of hell? Here we have a severe interjection, followed by a daunting rhetorical question. First, Jesus tells them what they are by nature, spiritually speaking, figuratively speaking. You see, serpents were symbols of evil. They really have been all down through history. Early in Genesis, we have Satan identified with the serpent in Genesis 3. And in the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, we have him specifically described in this way. Revelation 19, or rather 12, 9. So the great dragon was cast out, the serpent of old, called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. In John 8, 44, Jesus said to the Pharisees, You are of your father the devil. And like their father, they too were liars and murderers in their heart. As serpents, Jesus is metaphorically depicting that they have an evil nature, like the devil. Brood of vipers is evidently a parallelism added for emphasis. Vipers were were small poisonous snakes that looked like dry twigs, thereupon uh, having a deceptive quality. Now, if one was picking up sticks, it would be easy to mistakenly grab one of these vipers, be bitten, and die. 
Therefore, these snakes were known for being both deceitful and deadly. Jesus told the scribes and the Pharisees, you're a deadly bunch. You're a deceptive bunch and you're a deadly bunch. You brood of vipers. They were like this, spiritually speaking. Now, this is a put down no matter what. But for esteemed religious leaders, this was an insult beyond measure. But in fact, Christ spoke words of sober truth. Being evil hypocrites, Jesus then asked, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? This is the ultimate question. How can depraved, wicked religious leaders escape hellfire? The implication is clearly that they are on the path to hell. How can these who are filling up the measure of sin of their forefathers and are in character serpents and vipers, how can they possibly escape the condemnation of hell? This is deadly serious stuff. Eternally serious. Now, it was common in Bible times for farmers to burn the stubble off of a field in preparation for next year's planting. And as the flames approached the vipers' dens, they would scurry to try and escape. John MacArthur says, Jesus, in effect, said, You wicked and deceitful men, do you really think you can outrun God's fire of judgment? Here again, Christ used the Greek word Gehenna, which is translated here as hell. Gehenna always refers to the final abode of the damned, which is called the lake of fire in the book of Revelation. This is the final destiny of the lost, where they will be cast on judgment day. Now, right now, when unsaved people die, their souls go to a temporary holding place of torment called Sheol in the Old Testament, translated as Hades in the New Testament. So uh, here's what we're talking about. Uh, Sheol is the Old Testament Hebrew word. Hades is the New Testament Greek word. And there were two compartments, as we find in Luke 16. Uh, there was a place of paradise, Abraham's bosom, as it was called. In the Old Testament, this is where the, the Old Testament saints were. It's empty now because we believe Christ at his resurrection took them back to heaven. Uh, Hebrews would emphasize that. But this place, uh, this section of torments, the place, the realm of the dead, Hades, the realm of the dead, uh, that's where they still go when they die. And they're all waiting there. All the lost who have ever died throughout all the centuries, all the eras, they're all right there right now in Sheol, Hades. That's where they are. And they're going to stay there until the great white throne judgment. And then they're going to get their day in court. It's not going to be good, but they're going to get their day in court before the great white throne judgment, before the Lord. And then they will be cast into their final destiny, which is the lake of fire, which is Gehenna, which is the word that Christ used here. In Mark 9, 43, Christ described Gehenna as a place of fire that shall never be quenched, a place of unending torment. Christ is telling these religious leaders, these esteemed religious leaders, in no uncertain terms, that they are on their way to an eternal hell fire and rhetorically asking them how they shall escape. How are you going to get away from this? But even here, even here, there was some grace offered. After asking them how they could escape, Hellfire, 
Jesus, in effect, told them. He told them how, as seen in the next verse, verse 34. Therefore, in view of the need to escape, therefore, indeed, I send you prophets, wise men, and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. Here was the way of escape. If they could only see it. It was in Christ sending them prophets, wise men, and scribes who would convey to them God's truth in the gospel by which one can be saved. The warning was severe, but the way of escape was clearly being presented to them by these emissaries of Christ whom he would send. Now, the language here of prophets, wise men, and scribes is really couched in the language of the Old Testament. But everyone agrees that Christ evidently has in view his apostles and their early church prophetic ministry, which was an extension of Christ's ministry. And people like Stephen, who spoke with irresistible wisdom, as seen in Acts 6 and 7. And also people like Philip the Evangelist, also in the book of Acts. This category of people clearly brought forth the message of Christ with power following the resurrection, which served as a further powerful witness to the whole of Israel. Thus, the way of escape was clearly made known. By the way, John the Baptist used this very same language when he called the Pharisees and the Sadducees brood of vipers in Matthew 3, 7. He too solemnly warned them, saying, Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? But then he also included a measure of grace saying, Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. And in so doing indicated the way of escape was via repentance. Sadly, these religious leaders, with rare exception, there was Nicodemus, there was uh, Saul who became Paul, the apostle Paul as we know him, There were some exceptions. But these religious leaders, with rare exception, were not willing to listen and instead responded exactly the the way Christ said they would. When he said, some of them you will kill and crucify. Some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. This is a prophetic commentary on what happened in the book of Acts. It came to pass exactly as Christ predicted. These religious leaders then took the lead in persecuting Christ's special witnesses following the resurrection. The night before he was crucified, Christ warned his disciples of this very thing. Notice what he said to them. I guess I forgot this. Yeah, there's where I want to be. Uh, John uh, 16, 2 and 3. They will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming. Whoever kills you, he's speaking to his apostles. Whoever kills you will think that he offers God's service. We're serving God and killing you. They're going to think they're serving God. And these things they will do to you because they have not known the Father nor me. Ed Glasscock says the statement, you will kill, was to draw attention to their guilt. Even as their fathers were guilty of killing those sent them from God. Their boast of verse 30, we would not have been partakers with them, was thus exposed. This prophecy of persecution of Christ's servants was clearly fulfilled in the book of Acts. 
And the consequences of this accumulative rejection will be as follows. Verse 35. That on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth. From the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. The blood of the righteous refers to people of true faith who were martyred throughout the Old Testament era. Abel was the first person murdered because of his righteous faith, as seen in Genesis 4.8. Now, there's a lot of debate about the identity of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah. Some think this is actually Zechariah, the prophet mentioned in Zechariah 1.1, and for good reason. You see, he is specifically stated there to be the son of Berechiah. There's a little problem, however. There's no mention whatsoever of how he died. So we don't know how he died. Unless Christ was talking about him right here, then we know. But a lot of other commentators believe that Zechariah mentioned here by Jesus is the Zechariah who was martyred as recorded in 2 Chronicles 24, verses 20 through 22. And they say this makes sense because the description of what Christ says here fits him perfectly in terms of how he died. And also, 2 Chronicles was the last book in the Jewish Bible, the Old Testament canon as the Jews put it together, 2 Chronicles was the last book. It would be like us talking from Genesis to Revelation, saying the whole book. If you're talking about the whole Hebrew Bible up to that point, this would be the whole Hebrew Bible. Uh, the problem is that Zechariah in 2 Chronicles 24 is said to be the son of Jehoiada and not that of Berechiah. So, uh, lots of possible explanations are given here. And I'm telling you, uh, <laughs> I often say, when, when things are not clear, there's a lot of ink. Uh, people just write and write and write and write and write. I'm, I'm sure it's this way, and write. And, uh, and we can't be sure, but I'm writing. And they just write about this forever. And this is one of those situations. Uh, lots of explanations with, uh, are being given, but really no conclusive arguments as to whether this is talking about Zechariah in 2 Chronicles 24 or Zechariah the prophet is mentioned in Zechariah 1. Suffice it to say, Jesus is really talking about the accumulative guilt that essentially covers the whole Old Testament era that is now coming to a climax in reference to this generation in which Jesus lived, as stated in verse 32. But do note that Christ is specifically talking about the history of counterfeit religious people who have killed the righteous. You see, Cain was a professing worshiper who killed his brother Abel over a religious dispute. Zechariah was killed in the context of the temple by the people professing to belong to God, we assume. So in view is the guilt of religious people who, while professing to be God's people, are guilty of killing God's true people. Warren Wearsby, the Pharisees and their kind are guilty of all the righteous blood shed in the name of religion. There are a lot of religious killers who are totally hypocritical in their profession. And there was a lot of accumulative guilt here that was now coming to a head. John MacArthur says the scribes and Pharisees had all the accumulated revelation of the Old Testament. And for three years they had even received the perfect revelation of God's own Son. 
And the more they accumulated God's revelation without believing and following it, the more they accumulated God's wrath and judgment in direct proportion. They and their generation could be held guilty for all the righteous blood shed on earth because no generation in history has had or ever will have had more of God's light. They had God incarnate in their midst, who himself is all truth and all light, and yet they would not have him. This generation continued to share in the same character as their forefathers. So much so that because of their solidarity of spirit, Christ could say, whom you murdered. Speaking of Zechariah, who was martyred in the Old Testament at the temple. Make no doubt about it. Christ was labeling these scribes and Pharisees as murderers, just as liable as their forefathers. Because in their hearts, they had the same complicit spirit of murder and were about to carry out the same type of of atrocities. And in fact, the generation that Christ was addressing was really even more liable because they had all this accumulative revelation culminating in the ministry of the Messiah that they were rejecting. And because of this, Christ said, verse 36, assuredly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. The killing of the righteous servants of God definitely came to a climax in reference to to the generation living during the time of Christ as they committed the ultimate crime of killing the the holy Messiah and his servants that followed him. All these things refers to the accumulative guilt and judgment that had been accruing towards the persecutors of God's people from the beginning of time, which was now about to fall on this generation. Now, the general consensus... really essentially all the Bible commentators that I read, which is about 25, uh, is that in view here is the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in A.D. 70. That marked a major judgment event in the history of the world. This event happened less than 40 years after Christ had spoken these words. In Luke 21, 22, Jesus called these, quote, the days of vengeance. In A.D. 66, a Jewish revolt broke out against Rome. Titus, the Roman general, brought 80,000 troops to Jerusalem and demanded that it surrender. The Jews defied that order with mocking ridicule. And the result was an almost indescribable slaughter. The Jewish historian Josephus said about 1.1 million Jews were killed. In A.D. 70, the city of Jerusalem was completely destroyed. And the glorious temple of the Jews was burned to the ground. The defeat was so crushing that Israel at that time ceased to be a nation. This began the time of worldwide dispersion for the Jews as they began to scatter and were persecuted almost everywhere they went, which eventuated in them being scattered throughout the entire world. Indeed, that generation did in fact see the horrific judgment of God fall on them, which impacted them as a people not being a nation for almost the next 2,000 years. In Deuteronomy 28, God promised blessing upon Israel for obedience and curses for disobedience. 
In Leviticus 26, there are five stages of discipline for the disobedient people of, of God, Israel. With the final state involving expulsion from the land. This was the most serious form of discipline. I want you to see this in Leviticus. These five stages here. Uh, stage one, stage two, three, four. Fifth stage. We read about it here in, in Leviticus 26, 33. Where God says, I will scatter you among the nations and draw out a sword after you and your land shall be desolate and your cities waste. Similarly, Deuteronomy 28, then the Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other. And there you will serve other gods, which neither you nor your fathers have known, wood and stone. And among those nations, you shall find no rest, nor shall the sole of your foot have a resting place. But there the Lord will give you a trembling heart, failing eyes and anguish of soul. Follow the history of the Jews and you will see that A.D. 70 set in motion this very experience for the Jews as they were scattered to the four winds. Israel is one of the key apologetics for the Bible and the God of the Bible. God has permanently identified himself with this earthly people, one chosen nation, Israel. Prophetic history swirls around this people and this land. What God says about Israel has a fulfillment. It always has. This is true of the curses, but is also true of the blessings. He's not done with them yet. Just as sure as the curses have been fulfilled, so will yet also be the future blessings. But there is a condition that must be met, and it is the condition of repentance. And Jesus will deal with this in the concluding verses of this chapter, as Lord willing, we will note next week. Let me conclude with two points of application here this morning. First to you, the church. What are you doing here? What are you doing, not just at this premise here, but what are you doing in the world? You see, we know that the world is on a collision course with God's judgment. We know this. We, the people of the book, know this. We know we are living in the last days. As Paul says, we are those, quote, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. 1 Corinthians 10, 11. You see, the world's cup of sin is getting fuller and fuller. And it's almost to the brim. And when it is completely full, then God will rapture his church out of the world and bring his unparalleled judgment on the whole world. Judgment day is coming and we know it's coming. The world is blind to it. It comes on them as a thief in the night. They don't see it. As Acts 17, 30 and 31 says, God now commands all men everywhere to repent. Why? 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 He commands everybody, repent. Why? Because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. They need to come to repentance. Our job, you see, is to warn the world and to invite the world to come to Jesus and thereby escape the wrath of God that is about to come upon the whole world. We are to be like Lot, who warned his family of impending judgment. We are to be like Noah, who warned the world. After spelling out worldwide judgment, 
that is headed for the world in the book of Revelation, it ends with this invitation. Revelation twenty-two seventeen, And the Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let him who hears say, Come. And let him who thirsts, Come. Whoever desires, let him take of the water of life freely. This is our place in the world today. We are warning the world, like Lot, like Noah, and we are inviting them to come while they still have the opportunity. Then let me challenge you, if you happen to be listening today, one form or another, and you're not saved, oh, you're a little religious. I mean, you do come to church once in a while, but you're not saved. You, you have what we might call churchianity, but not Christianity. If you are living a double life of a hypocrite, take Christ's all-important question to heart. How can you escape the condemnation of hell? You're on your way to hell. How are you going to escape? That's my question for you. That's Christ's question for you today. The answer, of course, is found in the acceptance of Christ as Lord and Savior, which is the whole point. It's apropos that the writer to the Hebrews also asks, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? And the answer is, we won't. We won't. There's only one God-ordained way of escape. Here it is. Romans 5, 8, and 9, God demonstrates his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood. This is how we are made righteous before God. We're justified by his blood. We shall be saved from wrath through him. And how do you appropriate it? Therefore, having been justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what Jesus did for us. We're justified by his blood, but we have to appropriate it by faith. And since we're focused on ultimate questions, I leave you with this. Have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Come to Jesus. Now is the accepted time, the Bible says. The door of grace is open. This is the only way of escape. Let's stand and have our closing song.